The FIF has been a distinctive legal institution of Western legal history. We can say that it affected very deeply the law of property, the relationships between persons, and the public law. I am Emanuele Conte, and I will have a short discussion with two experts of the feudal institutions of the Middle Ages. Matthew McAfee is an expert of the European legal institutions in the central Middle Ages and during the controversial century that runs from 1050 to 1150. Attilio Stella is a specialist of the feudal law as it was defined by legislation and practice in the later period that runs roughly between 1150 and 1300. Thank you both for joining me in this discussion. Matthew, do you think that the traditional description of the fief as a composed institution based on a peculiar form of property, on a personal relationship based on fidelity, and including also some public powers as jurisdiction, fits with the historical reality of the ages before 1050. Thank you, Emanuela. I think that's a very difficult question to answer, um, for which the answer would be partly yes, partly no. In part of the yes camp, grants of property um, given to individuals on more or less limited terms are a fairly basic element of political relationships, which we see through the late antique period and through the early Middle Ages and into the period around 1050. And it may be more appropriate here to think in terms of clientage, for example, and the ways in which patrons attract clients within their political orbit. What is new in the 11th century seems to be the terminology of the fief itself, the Latin theodum or feudum, fevum, fu. Um, and these terms do start to appear in acts of practice, so in charters and documents from the early 11th century. And this suggests some sort of conceptual change, or at least a definitional change in the types of property and ways in which people understand that property. Teasing out the significance of this change, however, is a much more difficult question. And understanding what exactly the fief is, is a very difficult question to answer indeed. Personally, I am less convinced that by about 1050, there is an extremely tight and close relationship between the fief as a particular type of property, which is given to an individual, a subordinate, often called a vassal, in return for specific service, and where that relationship centered on the property is mediated by ideas of fidelity. I think this is an element that we can see in some political relationships across Europe, particularly amongst the elite, but it's also important to recognize what an emphasis on this type of understanding of the fief leaves out of our historical understanding. So, for example, 
It also seems very clear during this period that the fief refers almost to a territorial unit. This touches in part on the issue of jurisdiction, but I think it goes much wider than the idea of jurisdiction. Much of the evidence that I am familiar with from France, for example, shows the fief as this broader, abstract sense of territory. It may not be a coherent territory, but it is a sense of territory, and it encompasses all of the economic, the political, perhaps even the moral forms of pressure and authority and power that an individual can exercise within it. And I think it's also important in this light to, you know, at least nod our hat to Marx and the kind of Marxist framework of feudal relations, of the relationship between a lord and a subject peasantry, and the mechanisms in place to extract resources from the peasantry. And this is quite different from the traditional idea of the fief as something which unites lords and vassals centered on fidelity. And in short, what I think we see is a much more polyvalent set of relationships and structures. So I've preferred to think more broadly in terms of lordship, in terms of relations of domination and subordination, and relations which may encompass any form of practice or discourse that is broadly structured on that type of hierarchical relationship, but can't be identified with a single distinct practice. Thank you, Matt. It is actually a very difficult question. But I want to raise you a more difficult question now. I wonder if we can say that the early thief has been deeply influenced by the Christian theology and by canon. What do you think about this? Again, I mean, as you said, that is an immensely, immensely difficult question. There's certainly the argument that the early fief evolved, in part at least, out of what's called the beneficium. So this was a form of ecclesiastical property granted to someone, and it was ordinarily meant to be revocable. So the ecclesiastical institution could take it back, or more typically, upon the holder's death, so the person holding a beneficium, upon that person's death, the property would revert back to the ecclesiastical institution. This is an argument that can be made for some early fiefs, but it needs to be countered by evidence. So there's examples from Western France where the fief is explicitly juxtaposed to the beneficium, and the difference is that the fief is heritable. And it implies, in these contexts at least, more limited powers on the part of the Lord in contrast to the beneficium. So that would be my first point. There is a relationship between property practices, but whether we can characterize that relationship in terms of a direct borrowing or modeling of the fief is perhaps more ambiguous. I think we also pay attention to someone like Fulbert of Chartres. So Fulbert was a bishop of Chartres who died in 1028, 
And he is most famous, at least in the context we're talking about here, for writing a letter to the Duke of Aquitaine in about 1020, 1021. And this is a letter on the so-called form of fidelity or forma fidelitatis. Um, And this is a document often cited as a kind of ideal type of the obligations of the vassal towards his lord. And the letter became important in later later legal traditions as well, as it uh, formed the subject of commentary by Jus Commune lawyers um, and was one of the main set texts for medieval jurisprudence of what fidelity entailed. Fulbert's interesting because he serves as a useful reminder that some of the boundaries that perhaps later jurists, and this might be later medieval jurists, this may more likely be later early modern jurists, but Fulbert is a useful reminder that some of the categories that later jurists impose separating ecclesiastical from secular um, are perhaps less difficult to reconcile with the realities of what we see in the 10th and the 11th centuries. The boundaries between church and secular are ideological boundaries, of course, and there's evidence for those boundaries and for people articulating those boundaries in this period. But we need to also remember that churchmen like Fulbert were related to their secular counterparts. They were lords like their secular counterparts. They wrote to their secular counterparts, uh, they articulated the basis of political power and relationships to their secular counterparts. So we should probably, I wonder, think more in terms of a hybridity rather than starting from the position of two discrete spheres, one of which influences the other, when in some respects, these referring to secular and ecclesiastical are largely post-enlightenment and to a lesser extent, perhaps post-reformation categories that are difficult sometimes to balance with the medieval evidence. Thank you very, very much, Matt. Attilio, some decades after Fulbert, we start seeing compilations of uh, local customs, which became quickly kind of general book of law. I mean, the Liberfieldorum. We know that the Liberfieldorum are based on a description of local feudal customs written by a Lombard judge. How has it been possible that a local custom has been adopted as general rule very largely by the whole of Europe? The easiest and most obvious answer would be that the law schools flourishing across Western Europe determined the success of the Libri Feudorum, which, I remind, is a collection of customs and imperial legislation on fiefs compiled in Lombardy, northern Italy, in different stages, very slowly, between the 12th and the mid-13th centuries. Uh, The success of the book was in the first place due to the fact that schools needed a textbook in order to teach and drive the debate on fiefs. 
And on the other hand, the Roman law texts, the Corpus Juris Civilis, did not contain any direct information on lords, vassals, or fiefs. Uh, so this is why some professors in northern Italy decided it worth to use the Libri Feudorum as a teaching text. The operation was successful, and by the late 13th century, the book became the standard texts for teaching feudal law across Western Europe. This was a revolutionary step. For the first and only time in history, a customary text, inspired by the local practices of a particular region, became part of the general legal history of Europe. Yes, actually, it is, it is really an extraordinary story of diffusion of the local custom. If you look at the actual controversies about fiefs in northern Italy, do we have the impression that the Liber Feudorum applied everywhere, or there were different customs applied locally? The impression is that the Liber Feudorum did not exert an early and direct influence on practices outside Lombardy. And if one looks at Lombardy, many parts of the book became obsolete in the early 13th century already. Indeed, the text itself can be seen as a particular expression of a broader and multifaceted bundle of customs concerning fiefs, which developed and applied locally in, in different regions. In more general terms, the problems at stake here is that of the impact of school on practice. The local customs of Lombardy, which were collected in the Libre Feudorum, obviously could not impact other local customs directly on the short run, but they worked more slowly, in a more indirect way. The text was more useful to drive debate on fiefs in the scholastic and academic environments rather than in the courtroom, at least in the first period when the book was starting being used uh, across Europe. Of course, uh, academic teaching was a fundamental element in the training of lawyers. But how the notions developed in the intellectual debate, uh, how these notions were secreted into the wrinkles of practice, is a matter that still remains unresolved. Uh, but what is important to stress is that even though ever less room was left for local customs to change in the late Middle Ages, uh, these customs continued to develop and apply locally. Thank you. It is a very complex story, actually. Uh, a last question for both of you. Was feudal law a matter of mentality rather than a complex of legal institutions? When the French Revolution abolished the fief, was it pushing the French society to think differently and not only to change the law of property and the law of persons? Uh, if we look on the long term at the practices concerning lords and vassals, we can find both discontinuities and continuities, of course. Uh, concerning discontinuities, we all know that society changes continuously. Uh, in the late Middle Ages, furthermore, legal tools were sharpened, and the vertical relationships that to some extent shaped the political arena changed accordingly. In this context, feudal law became uh, a complex of legal institutions which configured a specific kind of these vertical relations, not necessarily the most diffused kind of vertical relations. On the other hand, in the early modern era, or earlier as, as Matt suggested, uh, feudal relations became more and more identified with lordship, uh, power uh, exerted over uh, peasantry, especially in France, 
uh, but not only in France, I think of southern Italy, of course. Uh, this broad overlapping of lordship and feudalism can perhaps be seen as the main line of continuity. When the French revolutionaries then abolished feudalism, the so-called feudalité, uh, they had in mind this broad notion rather than feudal relations in a technical sense. Therefore, my answer to your second question would be yes, uh, the French Revolution wanted not only to change the law of property and the law of persons, but ideologically and strategically undermine the entire system of lordship. Yeah, I have very little to add to what Attilio has just said, and I agree completely uh, with him. What I will add, however, is I think it is also important to think in terms of jurisdiction and the separation of the public and the private, and that this is a slightly different issue from that of property relations, although, of course, the two are closely related. But one of the main problems for jurists in the early modern period and leading up to the revolution itself was about sovereignty and who had legal authority and how to take away legal authority from the seigneurs, the lords, the seigneurie. And in part, this is, of course, connected to ideas of property, because thinking again of France, the liberal republicanism of the uh, post-revolutionary period saw the state as the necessary guarantor of private property. So any relationship whereby an individual's use of property was mediated by a figure such as a lord was inherently bad or contrary to the desired political order. But I think it is important not to lose sight of the wider jurisdictional points here. And it's worth remembering that in the lead up to the revolution, the cahier de doléances, the dossiers of complaints against lords, centered largely on courts, the seigneurial courts, and complaints about how jurisdiction um, and how courts were being exercised, um, how power was being exercised through those courts. And that's a slightly different framework. And what we get in the revolutionary period, I think, at least in my view, as admittedly not an expert of early 19th century political thought, but what we get is a reconfiguration of a new political order. And this, in this I agree completely with what Attilio was saying of trying to change the way in which people think about society. And we need to not lose sight of the literally revolutionary scale of thought that emerged as a result of this. And that's really all I have to add to that. Thank you very much to both of you who have tried to give uh, well, some little thoughts about a, an extremely important uh, institution for uh, the European uh, history and whose importance ranges from uh, the early Middle Ages until today. So really, thank you very much for joining me in this discussion.